passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Billy Graham uh, once said, Tell me what you think about money, and I will tell you what you think about God. Now, Mr. Graham wasn't making a statement on whether you had a, a certain economic policy. He wasn't making a statement on whether you uh, believe that we should have a paper monetary system or where you should invest. What Mr. Graham meant when he said that was something far more simple and yet infinitely more challenging to us. When he says, tell me what you think about money and I will tell you what you think about God, he's really saying that money reveals our hearts in a way that nothing else can. Money reveals to us our hearts, where our priorities really are, and it reveals to us whether God is one of those priorities. Richard Halverson was the uh, chaplain of the U.S. Senate in the 1980s, and he was a friend of Billy Graham, and he said something similar. Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing, because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a person's true character. All through scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a person's character and how that person handles their money. Both Billy Graham and Richard Halverson were both basing what they said on the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, where your heart is, there will be your treasure also. It's a very popular teaching, one that we've likely heard before, but I think it's actually even clearer for us to examine ourselves if we look at it in reverse. Rather than saying where your heart is there, your treasure will be also, it is helpful to look at it in the opposite way. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if we were to follow the money trail of your discretionary income and discover where you're spending the majority of your money, we can most likely see what is of greatest importance to you. It's a scary thought. It's a scary thought that what our hands do with our money shows how our heart thinks about God. Imagine if heaven were to do a comprehensive audit of everything that you spent money on in the past year with your discretionary income. Now, obviously, heaven doesn't need an audit because God has the ability to know exactly what you have spent that money on. But what would that audit reveal? What priorities would it reveal in your life? You see, if Billy Graham's statement is true... That how we spend our money, what we think about money, how it reveals our view of God. If that is true, then the American view of God is dismally low. Consider what Americans have spent their money on each year. From 2000 to 2005, each year, Americans spent about $15.2 billion on boats and other watercraft. $15.2 
$27.9 billion on candy. $29.7 billion on sporting goods. $29.8 billion on alcohol. $36.5 billion on toys, either for their children or for their pets. $45 billion on the lottery. $59.4 billion on jewelry. $203.7 billion on entertainment. And $288.7 billion on vacation each and every year. You add that up and that's 735 Point nine billion dollars spent every year during those years by Americans on frivolous things. Contrast that with 188 billion dollars that is given to every single charity combined. And the money spending habits of Americans reveals to us what we think about God as a culture. Unfortunately, the church is not all that much better. In 2009, there was a study conducted that said if Americans would just give 10%, excuse me, if American Christians would just give 10% of their net income after taxes, so not even a full tithe, but after taxes, if they would give 10% of their income, then there would be $174 billion in addition to that $188 billion available for whatever the church saw fit. That same year, there was another study, completely independent study, that was conducted that said and estimated that only about $45 billion is needed each year to end world hunger and to end all forms of disease associated with malnutrition. So if you do the math, $174 billion is a a little bit more than $45 billion, and it'd be very easy for the church, for those who call themselves Christians, if they gave faithfully to end world hunger, to end diseases associated with malnutrition on their own without any assistance from the government or secular institutions. What we do with our money reveals a great deal about our hearts. You see, American Christians are more wealthy than any other group of Christians in world history. For many of us, it doesn't feel like we have a lot of money yet compared to the rest of the world. If we make over $20,000 total as a family, we are the equivalent of, in the Middle Ages, being lords and nobles compared to the income of the serfs in the rest of the world. Comparisons can be difficult, though, when you cross cultures. We all know the cost of living varies from location to location here in the United States. And, of course, it varies from location to location when you go globally. And so you may begin to wonder, well, is the gap really that big? Before this week, I I didn't think it was that big. But it is still a huge gap. Economists have put together an index called the Purchase Power Parity. And it factors in the cost of living expenses and the differences and says, all right, let's see how we can compare the income of one country with the income of another country and how they are able to live off of that income. So, for example, in Pakistan, the average income for a family is $1,200 a year. But... The cost of living is cheaper in Pakistan than it is here in the United States. And so that would be the equivalent of living in the United States with $2,900 each year. It may not be as big of a gap, but it is still a significant 
difference. When we factor in cost of living differences, American families have the ability and the capacity to live off of resources 1.75 times greater than those in Saudi Arabia, 13.75 times greater than those who live in India, and over 30 times greater than those who live in Kenya. If your family combined makes more than $52,000 each year, which is the medium income for a family household here in the United States, then the difference is even higher. The difference in wealth for Americans and the rest of the world is staggering. But I don't want this to be a guilt-laden Sunday, and you might be saying, well, you're doing a really bad job at that, Jordan. I bring up this huge disparity of resources because as we approach this passage, I want us to be reminded that this passage has something to say to each and every one of us, whether we feel wealthy or not. When we look at others surrounding us here in our culture, whether we see ourselves as wealthy or not in our culture, compared to the rest of humanity, we are. None of us here lives off of $2,900 a year for our entire family here in the United States. Rather than beat ourselves up or feel guilty, I think it's important for us to look at this passage from a different perspective and ask the question, why? Ask the question why, not why from a sociological or economic position of why is it what has caused our country to have so much more wealth compared to the rest of the world, but instead to look at it from the position of why has God given us so much? For what reason has God entrusted us with so much wealth and so much money as American Christians? One author describes it this way. When we don't have enough money, we have no problem asking God why. Why is it that God is forcing us to live with less than what we feel like we need? What is God trying to teach us? How is he trying to shape us and mold us? Why, God, do I not have enough? So why wouldn't we ask God why when we do have enough? What are the reasons that God has entrusted us with so much? What does God want us to do with our excess? Does God have a plan for us that's more than just spending money on ourselves? What does God want us to do with that money? How does God want us to think about our money? And God has an answer for us. This morning's passage is very simple. We've been working our way through 1 Timothy over the past several months. This morning we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the final chapter of 1 Timothy. As we've been working our way through this book, we've seen time and time again Paul's charges to the church, how the church is supposed to live. And this morning he focuses on money in the church. If you're a guest with us, this is not a hobby horse. This is not something we normally talk about. It's just when you go through a book of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end, you can't skip passages such as this one. And so as we look at this passage here in 1 Timothy, Paul challenges the church to think about what does it mean to truly gain in this life? What does it mean to have true gain in this life? Does it mean to accumulate more and more, or is it something greater than that? Paul also 
encourages the church to think about the trap that a love of money is. Jesus in the Gospels lamented over how hard it was for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that is what Paul picks up on here. So this morning we're going to look at the dangers of pursuing wealth of loving money, as well as how God is calling us to live contently in our lives. Let's pray once more as we approach God's word. God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we rejoice that you speak to us in every situation, in every season, in abundance or in lack. Through your word. And so, Father, as we approach this passage, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, doing his work of shaping us, of molding us, of transforming us. God, we recognize that the cost of discipleship is indeed high, that the cost of carrying our cross would be unthinkable. If it were not for the glory that is awaiting us with you and your kingdom. So bless us now, God, as we approach your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at the tail end of verse 2. Please follow along as I read aloud. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and this teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Let's pause right there. These past few weeks, as we've been working our way through chapter 4, chapter 5, and now chapter 6 of First Timothy, we've seen that, that Paul is focusing on different segments of the church. First, he looks at pastors in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, he spends some time on the, the church's responsibility to care for the aging in their midst, as well as widows, And then at the end of chapter 5, he looks at pastors. And then as we began chapter 6 last week, Paul addressed slaves. Here, Paul addresses false teachers again. And as we've worked our way through this book, we've seen or spent plenty of time uh, talking about the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus. I don't want to belabor the point here. I think we spent enough time on that. But just notice briefly how Paul transitions from talking about the guilt of the false teachers into this discussion on true wealth or on true gain. First, notice that Paul says the false teachers have rejected the gospel. Verse 3 says that they have rejected the sound teaching of Jesus and how that applies to their lives and transforms them in godliness. Because of this rejection of the gospel, they have an unbridled pride And are without knowledge. One version translates that phrase uh, in a very interesting way. Says that these false teachers are pompous ignoramuses. I don't know how to to 
make that a plural, ignoramus. So the next time you uh, encounter false teaching, the Bible gives you full latitude to call them pompous ignoramuses. Because that's what happens when we focus on false teaching. False teaching puffs someone up whether they realize it or not. And whether they realize it or not, they are filled with false knowledge and have no knowledge of the truth. Next, Paul says that the result of this false teaching are divisions in the church. False teaching is like fissures that split apart the grounds during an earthquake. That is always the result of false teaching. It divides the church and it breaks the church apart. And then finally, Paul mentions that some of these false teachers were using their teaching as a way to get rich. This was actually relatively common in the first century where uh, teachers and and, uh, philosophers would travel around and they would share in such a way that they would try to be as eloquent as they possibly could so that people would give them money. This is why at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that he never accepts payment. That other people accuse him of, of being uh, this man who is, is out for the money, and yet Paul says, I've never accepted payment once because I don't want to put a stumbling block in the way of people when I bring them the gospel. These false teachers saw the gospel, saw teaching, saw Christianity as a way for them to make money. Unfortunately, this is something that still happens today. It's happened from the dawn of time. Some people see religion as a means to get rich. That's why Paul concludes this passage on false teachers with this statement. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Here at the end of verse 5, Paul goes on a tangent and he begins to describe, well, if they think that godliness is a means of gain, let me tell them what godliness really does gain you. The last section is applicable for all of us. It is a reminder to us that rather than financial gain, true gain is found in godliness itself. Pick up in verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with with these we will be content. Notice the play on words here. At the end of verse 5, the beginning of verse 6. The false teachers thought that godliness was a means of gain. And Paul says, you know what? You're not entirely wrong. You're not entirely wrong because godliness is a means of gain, and yet it's not the way that you think of it. Godliness itself is the great gain that Christians are charged to seek after. Paul mentions this earlier in chapter 4 when he says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness, for whole bodily training is of some value. But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul charges the church in Ephesus to to remember the surpassing worth of godliness, to remind them that it should be the number one goal in their life and that they are charged to exert every effort to attain this godliness, that they are to strive, they are to toil in order to know God more. They are to have their hope set on the living God 
their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what godliness is. It is a singular focus on God, on Jesus, that transforms our life. That's what our verses tell us in verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching or sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, and then Paul goes on from there, notice how he describes godliness in that verse. Godliness is rooted in the sound, or literally the word sound here is the word healthy. The healthy words of Jesus and of the New Testament. The teachings that, that are applied, uh, applicable to godliness. The teachings of the New Testament. If you want to be godly... Focus on the words of Jesus, focus on Jesus, and then focus on the words of Scripture. If your priority is set anywhere else, you will miss godliness and you will fall into spiritual sickness. Godliness is indeed a great gain, and yet it is not the way the false teachers think. In chapter 3, Paul describes the mystery of godliness when he says this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That verse can be a little confusing. He says, great is the mystery of godliness, and then he explains this, or shares this old first century hymn. The hymn tells us the gospel. It tells us that Jesus came to earth, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus died and rose again and has now ascended into heaven. Do you want to know the key to godliness? It's simply to know Jesus. It's simply to know Jesus. Do you want to be a godly man? Do you want to be a godly woman? Do you want your children to be godly? Help them to know Jesus. Pursue him. Set your gaze upon him in the scriptures. Surround yourselves with people who will also point you to Jesus. Point yourselves to Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures. Because godliness is only found in knowing Christ. Part of this godliness, part of this knowing Jesus, is realizing that the greatest treasure that you could ever have is already yours. That you have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. That you are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That you, as a Christian, will one day inherit the earth. When we realize that... The love of riches, of wealth, of comfort, of the newest toys, all of those things fade away when we have a singular focus on Jesus. That's why Paul states here that true godliness is found, or excuse me, true gain is found in godliness that is coupled with contentment. If we think that godliness is a means to an end, then it is not really godliness and it will lead us to ruin. 
But if we seek godliness for its own sake, if we seek Jesus for his own sake, then it will produce contentment in our lives. Not right away. Not perfectly. But as we continue to fix our gaze upon Jesus, we will continue to become more and more content in him, no matter our life circumstances. The word Paul uses here for contentment was a a famous or popular word in Greek philosophy in those days. It was made very popular by the Stoics. The Greek Stoics were known for promoting contentment, for challenging people to live within their means, to live with what they had. There's one key difference between what the Stoics meant when they talked about contentment and what Paul means here. For the Stoics, contentment was rooted in self-sufficiency. In other words, the key to contentment, the key to being content with what you have in this life is found within yourself. It's found by grabbing your, uh, pulling yourself up, by, by holding yourself accountable, by creating this contentment within yourself. And yet for Paul, it was found somewhere else. Paul did not talk about self-sufficiency, but instead about Christ-sufficiency. Philippians chapter 4 is one of the most popular or most well-known passages when it comes to contentment. Paul says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Notice here in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is closing his letter to the church in Philippi. The the church in Philippi has reached out to Paul and they say, Hey, Paul, we we hear you're in need. We want to come alongside you. We want to support you. We want to love you. We want to bless you. And Paul says, That's great. I'm so thankful that God has placed that on your heart to, to have this desire to come alongside of me. He says in chapter 4. Hello? There we go. That's why we need Luke Summers here to tell us when to change the batteries for the headset. What Paul is saying here in that passage is, is not that we are... Uh, going to uh, find this contentment within ourselves, but instead it's going to be found in Christ. The interesting thing about Philippians is that Paul had to learn this the hard way. Paul speaks as someone who has learned from experience that God has been teaching him. God has taught him when he has nothing. God has reminded him that he is to rely on Christ and not on himself. And God has reminded Paul in times of of plenty to not place his hope in these riches, but instead to place his hope in Christ and in Christ alone. This famous passage reminds us that contentment is not tied to our circumstances, but it is tied to Christ. 
as people, we can face great need and great abundance. We can face life with little or with much. And if we have Christ, it doesn't matter. If we know Jesus, then we have the key to contentment. In any circumstance, in any situation, our joy is not tied to those circumstances, but instead, rather, to the King. Paul's focus here, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, this very famous passage, he's not talking about financial success, he's not talking about hard work, he's not talking about athletic prowess, he's talking instead about contentment that is found in Christ and not in his circumstances. Paul tells us that the key to contentment is not a financial position, but instead a heart position. Now, when you hear that, you might be saying, well, that's great. I I understand what Paul is saying. I I want to have more joy in Christ. I want to be content in my life. But it's so much easier to be content, Jordan, when the car isn't breaking down. It is so much easier when there aren't a pile of hospital bills that are facing me. It is so much easier when the roof doesn't have a leak and needs to be repaired. I I want to be at the point where Paul is, where he says that he's content when he has little, and he's content where he has much. But if I'm honest with myself, and this this is Jordan speaking here, if I'm honest with myself, I'm a whole lot more content when I have a modest amount in the bank account, and there's no pressing burdens facing me. So what do we do? we feel that way? What do we do if we feel anxiety from the number of bills that are piling up? I know that the Bible says that we are not to worry, but it's a whole lot easier to not worry when there's nothing to worry about. Paul gets that too. Paul actually understands that. That's why he says in verse 8 here, it's such an important verse, that our contentment means that our necessities are met. Verse 8 says this, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul is not telling us to to live a contentment that is uh, disassociated from the realities facing us, from the needs that are facing us. Instead, he is saying, once your needs are met, do you find sufficiency in the person of Jesus? Do you find sufficiency in the person of Jesus? Is it possible that God has not done working in you yet? Is it possible that when, like me, you find yourself in those places where you struggle with contentment? Is it possible that God is continuing to work on us, continuing to turn our focus on Him, to continue to turn our love toward Him? Perhaps our discontentment reveals our great need for Christ. You see, that's, that's what the Bible tells us. The, the view that we have been describing, this view of contentment, is a biblical one. But it's not just a biblical one, it's also a smart one. The biblical view of possessions, of wealth, is actually very rational from the eternal perspective that faces us. In verse 7, Paul refers to the Old Testament. 
refers to this passage from Job, where Job talks about how he, he had nothing when he came into this world, and he had nothing when he leaves this world. And Paul says this is the right perspective for us to have in this life. We didn't bring anything with us. We won't be able to bring anything with us when we leave. John Rockefeller is widely considered the first American billionaire. Uh, Right when he died, a curious onlooker asked the manager of his estate how much money he left behind. And the estate manager wisely responded with everything. He left everything behind. Because we can't bring anything with us. So why would we accumulate much in this life? It's extremely short-sighted to do so. Matthew, a passage that we have alluded to uh, so far, and I just want to read this because it's so powerful. Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus tells us that we can't bring anything with us. But the astounding thing is, we can send it ahead of us. We can store up treasures in heaven rather than here on earth that are eternally secure, that we get to enjoy forever for the rest of our lives. Because God will reward those who are faithful stewards now with great rewards in the next life. One pastor wisely said, living generously with your finances, living simply with what you accumulate is not so much radical It's just plain smart. It's just plain smart to give up what you can't keep so that way you can gain what you will not lose and be able to enjoy for the rest of your life. And so before we continue and look at the last section of this passage, ask yourself, am I living smart from a biblical position? Am I living smart from a biblical position or do I have a, a... position or a perspective that is influenced instead by our culture. Contentment, this true gain that we speak of, is not rooted in our circumstances. It's not rooted in how much we have. It's not rooted in what we can accumulate, but it's rooted in Christ. Paul closes with a warning for Timothy and for everyone else, a warning on loving money on greed. He says this in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's clear that while a Focus on Christ leads to godliness, leads to gain, leads to contentment, no matter our circumstances. While that's true, greed is a trap. It leads to a downward spiral. It is a drug addiction. The more we feed it, the greater our need for a bigger and more significant hit. 
In the 1800s, a theologian said it this way, gold is like seawater. The more one drinks of it, the thirstier one becomes. The terrifying thing about greed, about the love of money, about the love of possessions, of stuff, of materialism, is that we will never be satisfied. One theologian puts it this way, there are two ways to have enough, to accumulate more and more and more, or to desire less. There are two ways to satisfy our greed, accumulate more or kill your greed. This trap of the love of money leads to ruin and destruction. Consider uh, just a few examples of the result of an unbridled greed and the pursuit of wealth. It leads to envy and jealousy towards those who have what you do not. It leads towards an anger toward God because he has not given you what he has given to other people. Those times when you are convicted by the Holy Spirit, you're filled with regret, with buyer's remorse, with guilt because of what you have done. It's actually scientifically proven that when you shop, uh, dopamine is released in the brain uh, for your pleasure centers, and you actually, it it is true what, what is oftentimes called therapeutic shopping, because it does feel good to shop. It does feel good to have that anticipation of getting something new. The only problem is the more we feed that addiction, the more and more dopamine we need for us to actually feel that high again. And so we have to get something bigger and bigger, something newer and shinier and more expensive for us to feel the satisfaction that can fade so quickly. It is true that temporary pleasure comes from greed, and yet it distracts us from true sources of joy. If we live a lifestyle above our means to acquire more and more, we can be racked with debt. We can be sick with a love of money while we may not have any. We can be enslaved to others in order to feed our addiction. There are a number of secondary costs that come with greed. If you spend $10,000 on an object, that's not the only cost that comes with it. In order to justify that to yourself, you now have to spend time with it to justify your expense. There are secondary costs that come with this, and then probably the most significant is a hardened heart that comes with greed. The more that we spend on ourselves, the harder our hearts will become. We will become selfish. We will become callous to the needs of those who are around us. We will become shells of who God has called us to be. It's no wonder that Paul describes in this passage that the desire to be rich plunges us into ruin and into destruction. A Romanian pastor stood at the end of the communist era era and the freedom of the new capitalism that that, uh, became a part of Eastern Europe, and he had a unique experience because he had seen both communist persecution and the influx of the free market. And he said, from my experience, 95% of Christians who are faced with the trial of persecution will pass. And 95% of Christians who are faced with the trial of prosperity will fail. In the Old Testament, Job 
God tested Job by taking every single thing away from him. Today, one wonders if God would test Job by allowing him to win the lottery. There is a great danger that comes with a love for money, and that's what Paul mentions in verse 10, a very famous quote, but one that is most often misquoted. Notice what verse 10 says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I want to just stop there. It's oftentimes said that money is the root of all evil instead of the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Paul is not condemning money. Money is neutral. He's condemning a love of money. While money may be neutral, our affections towards it, our heart's attitude towards it is not. Notice also, he's not saying that money is the cause of every single thing that is wrong in this world. Instead, he says all kinds of evils. Paul is restating what he said above, that greed will shipwreck your life. It will lead to ruin, and it will lead to destruction in your life. Perhaps the greatest harm of greed is found in the last sentence of verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The greatest harm of greed is that some people will leave the faith because of a love of money. Our hearts will eventually become so cold toward the things of God when we are in love with wealth and with possessions that we will turn our backs Jesus tells us that money is a false god. It is an idol. We will either worship God or we will worship the false god of money. We cannot worship both. Eventually, if we worship money and materialism long enough, it will demand our entire allegiance. And so Paul closes his passage with this very graphic picture of the danger of greed The way he describes it here is is literally saying that loving money is like impaling yourself over and over with countless pains. Greed will never be satisfied. It may not leave you broke, but it will leave you broken. And that is what Paul is trying to get at here. It will fill your heart with countless regrets. It will create you and within you a hard heart and will make you a shell of who you are meant to be. See, Paul's warning is strong for each of us, and so as we close, I just want you to challenge to take, or I just want to challenge you to take some time to wrestle through this question. Am I truly content with godliness, or is my contentment associated with my circumstances? Am I truly content with godliness, or is my contentment associated with my circumstances? Am I guilty of greed, of a love of money, a love of things? Remember how we began this morning. We began by asking the question, why? When we don't have enough, we ask God why. Let's ask the question, why, when we have plenty. How does God want us to honor him with our possessions? Remember, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, God tells us that the good gifts of earth are not wrong. They are not evil. First Timothy 4 says that we can receive all of these things with thanksgiving. 
But we must be weary of the temptation to turn good gifts into idols that we replace God rather than worship God with them. Am I truly content? For some of you, you already know the answer is no. You see Jesus' teaching here. You see the dangers in your own life. And if you have this desire within you to kill this love of stuff, to kill a love for money, the answer is radically simple and yet very difficult. That's the answer that Jesus told the rich young man when he said that he wanted to follow Jesus. He said, Jesus, I, I've kept all of the, uh, the statutes of the law. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. The, the best way for us to kill greed in our hearts, to kill a love of money in our hearts, is to give money away. There is nothing that will kill the idol of money and stuff than by giving it away. Because giving money away makes no sense. Why on earth would we give away that which is ours? But when we give money away, even when we don't want to, we are making a conscious decision to say, this money is not mine. This money is God's. Our church is really good compared to the rest of the United States and congregations, our church is very good at giving. Our campus, specifically, is very generous in its giving. I rejoice at that. It says much about our priorities. But might God be calling us to love him more with our money? Be wary of the snare of materialism one thing that is so fascinating about our culture is that we can have so much discretionary income in the United States that we can actually tithe, we can be generous toward the church and still be greedy. We can still be materialistic. Let us seek contentment that is found in Jesus, not in our circumstances. Let us pursue godliness, not our riches. Let us seek Christ and not wealth. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice when your Holy Spirit is is at work in us. We thank you for passages like this that can be difficult to hear. We thank you for the great love you have for us. Jesus, we ask now that you would give us the strength to follow you For some of us, that may mean continuing to do what we're doing. For some of us, that may mean making radical life changes. And for others, it may be just realigning our priorities. God, I pray that your spirit would convict us each now how you need us to be convicted in order to follow you and to love you more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.